chapter 6. Just a few verses really, but when you look at a, a great chapter like this, this is the longest chapter in John. It's very hard to know exactly where to start and where to stop when you read in the context, because the, the whole of this chapter is this discourse from where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and this kind of discourse with the Jews comes afterwards and he talks, as we read it several times, he said, I am the bread of life. Several times he said, I will raise them at the last day. We have to get all that if we're going to understand what is being said rather than just pick verses here and there. So Jesus, as we've read in this chapter, miraculously fed a multitude of people. Some of the Gospels include the fact that there were women and children there and that when Jesus said that there was 5,000 or the context of the writer said there were 5,000, there were actually more because the women and children weren't counted in that number. So there was a great multitude. I mean, I've stood in the middle of Nottingham and preached and there have been possibly one or 2,000 people milling around. But here you're talking about five, ten. 15,000 people all sat being fed by a little basket of small brown loaves of, of what you would call bread cakes and fish that was perhaps pickled or dried. Very little. Probably not even enough to full, to, to make a grown man like me full. Perhaps I may be full having five cobs. I call them cobs. I'm from Nottinghamshire, don't judge me. So, but the, here it is, 15, at least 15,000 people fed by these loaves miraculously. And he saw these people as sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them and his heart longed for them. And then these people who partook in this miracle misjudged it in their misguided thoughts about their desire for a king and they tried to take him by force and to shove him Onto the throne to make him king. A king that at that time he hadn't come to be. He hadn't come to conquer. To ride out on a horse with his lance. And his sword. And his armour to defeat the Romans. That's not why he was there. That's what they wanted. But that's not why he came. And so he went away. Out of the way of them. And then he sent his disciples on before him. And they got into a boat. And they went towards Capernaum. He stayed behind to dispel the people and bless them, I guess. And then, later on, he's found to be walking on the water towards them. They, in fear, as they saw him coming, thinking, is this a spirit? I mean, imagine your own self being on a great lake. It's called the Sea of Galilee, but it really is a great lake. And as it says, there was a great... Uh, wind that raged and kicked up and as I've said before it's easy after being on there to understand how that happens he comes walking on the water to the side of the boat after they realise who it is and he calms their fears and it seems that no, no sooner had their fears been calmed and they've welcomed him into the boat that all of a sudden miraculously again they are found to be at the place, at the land where, where they were heading. They were just there. They just turned their heads and there they were. These very same people 
who were fed by the loaves and fish noted that Jesus hadn't gone with his disciples in the boat. They, they saw. They realised, hold on, how, we saw in the con. How, how did you get here? How did you come to be here? We saw the disciples leave. Other boats went, but you weren't on them. How did you get here? So they were, they were surprised. And so they got into boats after going to the place where they'd been fed previously. And they decided once again to chase after Jesus, to go seeking him out, heading to Capernaum. And as we recall then from last time, these people sought Jesus out selfish reasons they didn't go to him for salvation they sought him out for what they could get they, what, what what can he do for them what, what can he do for me today what can I get out of him today they were full of food they didn't go to him because of salvation because they recognized him as the Messiah they didn't go because they believed he was their Lord and Saviour. They, they went because their stomachs were full. And in this world, who would not go to a Jesus who gives them everything that satisfied their life? And that's what you hear in many churches being preached. Come to Jesus and he will give you everything you need. Now we do believe that the Lord Jesus will give us everything we need. But we don't go to him for that. But some people preach that if you come to Jesus, everything in your life will be ironed out. Every financial problem, really, not only should be ironed out, but you should be living in abundance. You should be a person who's got a fat bank account. You should be a person who lives in absolute health. And if you don't, it's because you haven't got enough faith. That's what people preach. All lies. All garbage. That these people went because they thought they could get something from it. The question is for us, isn't it? Are we satisfied by what Jesus can give us? Do we come this morning because we want to get something from him only? Now we are clear in the fact that Jesus tells us to, uh, through Paul, to come and to, to put our requests out. To, to pray, to ask God in faith. For the things that we need. But do we come to him merely for that? Or do we come for him? Do, do, I, do I want to know the Lord Jesus himself as a person? Is that my main objective? Or is it just because he makes me feel better? Is it because he kind of puts the cherry on top of my life of cake? My life's great. All I need really now is just Jesus as the cherry on top. Is that the way it is? Because your life isn't cake, friends, without him. You're dead. You might think you're alive, but you're not. You have a heartbeat. You have a body. You have legs. You can walk, God willing. You can walk this earth, but you're dead. No hope, hater and a rejecter and a blasphemer of God. I think you need more than a cherry on top of that life. No, <coughs> Jesus, we should come to Jesus for him. What does he say in Matthew 6.33? Seek first the kingdom 
of God and his righteousness. And then what does he say? And all these other things that I know you need, all these other things shall be given to you besides. I will look after you, I promise. Are not you worth more than the sparrow in the sky that falls to the ground? Doesn't fall to the ground without the Father. Are you not worth more than they? Think of Solomon and all of his splendor. He's not arrayed like even one of the lilies of the field. That is alive one day, beautiful, and sits in the field and is dead the next. Are you not worth more than they? We need to trust our Lord in every area of our lives. No matter what we face. And some of us, more than others, may be facing things more drastic. But nevertheless, God is my God and he is your God. And he will see us through. And the reality is this. That we all face the inevitability of going from this life to the next. Sooner or later. Are we going to sit in fear of that? Or are we going to see it as one thing of gain? To live is Christ, to die is gain. I pray that for me, as I juggle that, for you as we juggle that, that we may live in that beauty and that glory of knowing that in this life I can know Christ as much really as I desire to know him. And in the life to come, I will know him in a way that I can never know him here. Because I am not limited by my sinful mind, my black wicked heart, my flesh that hinders me every day. That's going to be a great day. Why would we not say, Maranatha, even still, Lord, come. So Jesus says to these people, as they kind of ask him, how did you get here? And he said, you didn't come because you saw signs, you come because you were fed. Because you were full. Because your bellies were satisfied. He says this. Do not labour for food which perishes. But for food which endures to everlasting life. Which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on them. And listen to their reply. They said to him. What shall we do? What shall we do that we may work the works of God? So it's at this point that this great discourse between them in which the message behind the sign that he had just performed is laid out. There's always a reason for what Christ does. He fed the 5,000 and there was purpose in it. And he is about to explain really what that was all about. So I want to look at three different things. The first thing I want to look at is misunderstanding works misunderstanding works in luke 18 jesus tells the parable of the pharisee and the tax collector <coughs> familiar with that parable i would hope to uh, guess the pharisee is a pompous man an arrogant man very proud and very presumptuous and in his arrogance he begins to list his accreditations doesn't he Lord, I thank God that I am not like this person. You ever thought that? Are you guilty of thinking like that? I think if I could look, if I had the ability to look in every one of your minds, I would find you perhaps are guilty. I am. You ever look at somebody and find yourself judging them and it just comes from nowhere? 
I'm so glad that I'm not like him. So glad that I'm more righteous. So glad that I'm a much nicer person. And I think about God more than that person does. This is what he was saying. I tithe of all my mint and cumin and I do this and I do that. And I pray these many times a day. And I'm so glad I'm just not like this publican, this sinner. The tax collector though. Far different man, yes. A hated, scorned man who has probably robbed people of far too much percentage of the tax. These tax collectors bought the tax debt from the government and then they charged probably four times more. That's how they were rich. People hated the tax collectors and in some senses, humanly speaking, you can understand why Zacchaeus said, when he was saved, I'll, I'll return four times more than I took from them. Now there he is. The Lord God had touched his heart. The word has just, just pierced him right through. He's broken by the knowledge of his sin and his unworthiness before God and he cries out for his mercy. <clears throat> Luke tells us that Jesus spoke this parable for this reason. He spoke it to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That was the reason he wanted to speak it so that those people heard what he was saying because there were those amongst them the Pharisees and not only those perhaps some of the ordinary Jews who trusted in themselves who trusted in the fact that they were Jewish that their heritage meant that they were already in the team that they weren't on the sidelines like the Gentiles were we're in we're already there we're already righteous because we're sons of Abraham then we have John the Baptist who says to those Pharisee and Sadducee vipers as he calls them who came out to his baptism he says do not think to say to yourselves we have Abraham as our father for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these very stones what was he saying your heritage means nothing if we look in Romans the first three, four chapters. What's distinguished? What's, what's set out in those three chapters? What's set out is this. The Gentiles and Jews are all in the same boat. All sinners. All dead in trespasses and sin. The law can't save you. Don't trust in Abraham for your salvation. Because at the end you're going you're gonna to hear I never knew you. And you'll be saying what? I'm a son of Abraham. How can you not know me? Doesn't mean anything. God is able to raise up children of Abraham from the stones. What does that mean? Who do you think you are? When questioned, the blind man that Jesus had healed, the Pharisees said, you are his disciple. But we are Moses' disciples we know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. We are the disciples of Moses. Oh, what a claim to fame we have. We don't know who Jesus Christ is, but we know that God spoke to Moses and we're his disciples. We follow him. And we look 
the rich young ruler, when he went to Jesus, he asked, What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? What is that work? What did he say to him? He said, well, you've got these laws. Have you followed those laws? He says, oh, yes, yes. I followed those laws to a T from my very youth. But when questioned about his wealth and Jesus told him to go and give it all away, he went away with his head bowed, sad at heart because he was a wealthy man. Therefore, he had committed sin against the very first commandment. Have no other gods before me. What one thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You see the uh, progress of thought here. It's all in me. I'm a son of Abraham. I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. But I am righteous. And what shall I do? What one thing can I do that I may inherit eternal life? So these people, going back to these people, they said the very same thing, didn't they? They said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? What shall we do? Friends, you realise that even in Christendom, there is still this great desire for man to want to contribute to his salvation. I must be able to do something to get this. Surely, surely I, I can add something to my salvation. If, I'm just, if I just do this, or if I just act that way, if I'm just better, if I just stop that, if I just give. I mean, even if this guy had given all of his money to charity, I still wouldn't have saved him. There's only one thing that saves us. And it's not anything that we can actually do. We're not actually called to do anything. It's all done in the work of Jesus Christ. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? By fulfilling laws, ceremonies, feasts, sacrifices, being descendants of Abraham and disciples of Moses. They believed they were right with God. They believed they were righteous in themselves. But they completely ignored all that Jesus had literally just said to them. What did he say? He said, do not labour for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. And he says this, which the Son of Man will give you. I will do the work. Don't labour for the work that perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which I, which the Son of Man will give you. It's not, it doesn't come from you. The food that you give yourself only leads to death eventually. But the food that the Son of Man will give you leads to everlasting life. Galatians 2.16 says this, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. 
And you might think that that, you know, the Pharisees really need to hear that, and they did. They did need to hear it. And that was, that's what Jesus was saying to them. And that's what Paul was saying to, to them in Romans. You're not justified by keeping any of it. Why did Jesus say, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Because they were weary of keeping and trying and, and, and just, just, just giving everything to try and be righteous. To fulfill every law, every jot and tittle, but they couldn't do it. Why? Because the law wasn't given to be kept in that sense. It was to show the fact that they couldn't. It was to show the law brings out and reveals to you sin. I can't do this, Lord. So that you would then cry out to the one that could. No flesh shall be justified by being the son of Abraham. No flesh shall be justified by being a disciple of Moses. And no flesh shall be justified by keeping laws and ceremonies and feasts and sacrifices. It doesn't matter. The only way that we can be justified is through Jesus Christ. Through his work. Accepting. Putting your trust in it. Lord, you have died for me. You've laid down your life. You have paid the price for my sin. Your blood has been shed. Your body was broken. You went to the tomb. And on the third day rose again. And that proves that you'll be raised if you trust in him. Because it proved that God had accepted his sacrifice. If he'd have stayed dead, we'd all have been shot. But he didn't, did he? He rose again to life. And as it says in Romans 4, for our justification. Romans, 8, uh, Romans 10, 8 through 13. You know, the, the work. What work? What is it to work the works of God? Jesus tells them simply this. This is the work of God. That you believe in him who he sent. Somebody says to you, what do I need to do to be saved? You say that. Believe in him who he sent. That work is just to simply believe in Jesus. Not to believe in him as just some entity. But to believe him. You see the difference? How many people in your families, in your friends, say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But they don't believe him. <coughs> I believe that he's real, that he exists. Maybe he is the son of God. I don't deny that. But I also, without saying it, I say it with my life. I don't believe him. There's a difference. But we need to not only believe in him as some name on a badge. Oh, you're Jesus, are you? Yes, yeah, I believe that. You've got a name badge, it says so. No, we believe him. We believe him. And all he says and all he's done, believe his words to us. And if you believe and trust in me, I will save you and I will raise you up at the last day. Do you believe what he says? 
You've got to believe everything he says about himself, everything he says about you, everything he says about me, everything he says about sin, everything he says about the world. We have to believe him. Romans 10, 8 through 13 then. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The world may shame you. The world may beat you down. The world may try to crucify you. The world may try to embarrass you and make you out to be nothing. But in him, you will never be shamed. Never. But if we love the world, then we'll back away from that. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Some people read the first half of that verse and say you just need to say a prayer. Just need to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Say a prayer after me. And if you said that prayer, welcome into the kingdom, son. It's not what it says. It says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. The work has got to be done in the heart first. Yes, it may come through the mind, through the gospel being preached, absolutely. But if the work is not taking place in the heart, the confession means nothing. And that's the reality. Now then we look further on. In this context, we've looked then and how these people misunderstood works. It was always about what can I do? How do I act? What do I need to do to be saved? What work can I do? And Jesus says, believe. That's the work of God, to believe. Then we go on and look at the manna and Christ. You see, these people still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. He says, therefore they said to him, verse 30, what sign will you perform then? That we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? In other words, okay, you've said, if you believe in me or you'll be saved if you trust in me. I am the bread of life. It's all in me. Prove it. Prove it, God. Prove it. Again, we can ask ourselves again, can't we? Have we ever said that to the Lord? Lord, just prove yourself to me. It's remarkable how unbelief makes a person so blind. <coughs> Jesus said, I said to you that you have seen me and you don't believe. They go on to allude how God had given them a sign, or at least to their forefathers in the wilderness, the manna, the bread from heaven. Well, well, God sent us manna. God sent our forefathers manna from heaven, manifested on the ground. And they called it the bread from heaven. 
I am incredulous when I read this. If you look at the whole context. Was it not just a day ago that Jesus had performed amongst these very same people a multiplication miracle of food for them all to eat? And yet, they now ask him for another sign to prove himself. They sat, they've come back because they want to be fed again. They've seen the miraculous. And they say, well, you said that about yourself. How are you going to prove it? And I'm thinking, well, he did a day ago. Five loaves, two fish. What more do you want? So there is something to note. Those who constantly seek signs and wonders to prove God will never be satisfied. They'll always need more and more. What more will you do, Lord? I know that you did that back then and that was great, but what, what will you do now? I just need to constantly be convinced. I just need to see something else. This comes from unbelief rather than a place of faith. These kind of people that are constantly going on about, oh, we've got to see signs and wonders after the preaching. We've got to see miracles. We've got to see people getting out of wheelchairs. We need to be throwing crutches away. We need to be seeing, 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 seeing. People say, well, we've got, we've got the faith. We believe in the Holy Spirit. You guys don't. Sorry, I believe it's the opposite. If you can't believe without seeing and seeing and seeing and seeing. Where's faith? Where's faith in that? It comes from a place of unbelief. What did he say to Thomas? Thomas. You've seen, you've put your hands where my wounds are, and you believe. But blessed are they who do not see, and yet believe. The manner in the wilderness pointed to Christ. God fed, nourished, and provided for his people from heaven. Christ is the true manna sent from heaven. He said, didn't he? God didn't send you the manna from heaven. I am the bread from heaven. That was just a sign. That was just to show your forefathers who was coming. He is that true manna. He is the ram caught in the thicket. And just as God fed his people miraculously in the wilderness, Jesus miraculously fed the multitude in the wilderness. The Father and He are one. Jesus is essentially God. As it says in that context, that Jesus is the true bread from heaven, whom the Father sends to give life to the world. Multitudes. As we see again in the manna and in the breaking of that bread and that fish, He broke it and He fed multitudes. Just as He broke that bread and He shared it, to nourish and feed those people. His flesh would be broken to nourish and save countless souls. Jesus was telling them that he is the living fulfillment of what the manna in the wilderness represented. Their forefathers were sustained for manna, uh, by manna for 40 years, and the Bible says, and they died. 
Jesus Christ, the true and living bread, who did indeed come from heaven, sent by the Father, will sustain his people not for a mere generation, but forever. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus comes to do the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? Well, we see it in the context, don't we? The will of the Father is that Christ should not lose any of those that the Father gives to him. I love it. I don't care what other people say. I love that scripture. Nobody who is truly born again of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who is one of his sheep, who hears his voice, will ever be lost. People will say all sorts of things to try and convince you otherwise. But because, as we have already seen, the work is not in your hands to do. It's in the hands of another. And if he can't keep me, well, what's the point? If I wake up every morning wondering if the grip of Christ is left on me, or has he got me, has he, has he let me slip, am I his, am I not? Where is there any rest or assurance? How can Jesus say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? How can we go to him for rest if we don't know if he's going to let us go from one day to the next? You will not lose. That's the will of God. The will of the Father of him is you will not lose. He says it to his son, you will not lose any of those who I've given you. And it also says that the will of God is this, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. Not I might, not if that man, not if you, Chloe, cling to him with all your might. You can say that because we're not very strong, are we? I could let go at any second. But I like to think of Peter as he walked on the water and he begins to sink. What did he say? Lord, save me. He didn't swim for dear life and grab onto Jesus' ankle. No, he didn't. Jesus bent down, grabbed hold of his arm. It was him that held him, him that pulled him up, him that walked back to the, back to the boat and him that helped him back over. Not me. Oh yeah, sure, we, we are to remain in, in Christ and we are to, you know, in sanctification, we have a part to play and we're to be in the Word of God and we're to be in prayer and we're to be, do our utmost to pursue holiness. But he's got you in his arm and he won't let go because we'll let go. We'll let go and we'll grab on and we'll let go and we'll grab on and we'll let go but he'll never let go. And lastly, the need to feed on Christ. Verse 51 through 58 say this, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats 
of this bread. He will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarrelled among themselves. They still didn't get it. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? You see, their minds were literal. Of course, they come from a background of sacrifices, a background of it being anathema, to eat blood. Do Jews to eat blood? Well, the blood was, well, it was, meat was kosher, wasn't it? The blood was poured out, it was taken outside, it was poured out, and we kick, kick a pile of dust over it, so it was put away. The life is in the blood, we can't touch blood, and yet here this man is, who's claiming to be their Messiah, you've got to drink my blood. The Jews, which, oh, and they complained, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless, if you don't, even though you're complaining about it, I say this to you, if you don't do this, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you've got no life in you. No life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not the manna, but me. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. And so the Jews complained. Because Jesus' claim was that he himself was the bread of life. I mean, this was the son of Joseph and the son of Mary, who they knew. How could this man be from heaven? But rather than have ears to hear and eyes to see the Messiah that they longed for and waited for, standing before their very eyes, envy and jealousy and bitterness began to set in. Who does this son of Joseph think that he is? Well, we know we think he is, but we don't believe that he is. Where do you get off telling us that you've come from heaven? He three times Jesus emphatically stated that he himself is the bread of life or the living bread. Those who ate manna in the wilderness ate and were sustained for a time, but they died. Those who feed on Christ, the true living bread, will have everlasting life. The Jews asked, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, we need to eat food, don't we? In order to live... To be nourished. No doubt after this service you'll go home and be allowed whatever dinner you've prepared for this afternoon because we need to eat. As you speak of the miraculous provision of God for their forefathers in the wilderness by feeding of manna from heaven, and Jesus carries on. That's why he uses this, this metaphor, he carries on the <laughs> metaphor of the need to eat and drink. See, that nourishment, though, only served for a time. He is the living bread feeds his people unto eternal life. If we don't eat, we die. We must then be united to Christ 
This is what it means to eat from him, to be united to him, to be in him, to be in the merits of his life, in his death and subsequent resurrection. And Jesus, obviously to us, is not speaking of a real eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood as the Roman Catholics have grossly misconstrued. But putting our trust in Christ and his saving work on the cross for our salvation. We must take part. What did Jesus say to, to Peter when he washed his feet? Unless you allow me to do this, if you have no part with me. We need to be united in him. And I'm going to read to you in a second from John 15. We must, as we need regularly to eat physically, we must feed upon Christ regularly. John 15, 1-8 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Isn't that a real, uh, what's the word? It shows us that we must be in the word of God. You are already clean because of the word that I spoke to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides to the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. We've got to remain in him we need to eat every single day three four times a day whatever it is how much more do we need to feed upon Christ his word prayer fellowship with the saints breaking bread together trusting in the work that he's done for us the work that he's done for us that's how we remain united it doesn't say uh, united just to the, to, the, to the branch in a sense, but we're united to him, we're connected to him, who is the life source, the vine. The branch is useless by itself, it can't bear fruit, it needs to be connected to the root, to the vine, that which is coming from the earth, that which supplies all it needs. And is not Christ our supply? How can we bear fruit and flourish if we're not connected to him? And how can we flourish and bear fruit if we're not connected to him on a daily basis? We must make sure that we spend time with God in his word. Be at church. Be amongst his saints. Come under the priest's word of God. Sing praises 
prayed together fervently, trusting in the Lord together as one body united. You're not just to trust in God alone, absolutely you are, but we trust in God together as a body of believers. We need to remain united to him. He says in John 6, 53, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Friends, I do hope today that you are partaking of the vine, that you're joined to him, that you are partaking of his flesh and his blood in the merits of his life and his death and his resurrection. If you are, he won't let you go. But if you're not, there's no life in you. And there'll come a time where the life that you do have will end. And you'll be stood before the Saviour and he'll say, why? Why did you reject me? And you'll have to give a reason. But that reason won't be good enough for him to turn around and say, oh, it's all right, come on in. Depart from me, you work of iniquity. I don't know about you, but I don't want to hear that. And I don't want you to hear that. But God deserves the glory and God deserves the praise and he should not be rebelled against. So, as he says, what is that work? Believe. I call you this morning, if you don't believe, to believe. To believe on him whom God has sent. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are the living bread that came down from heaven and have given yourself that we may eat, that we may drink and feast upon everything that you have done and who you are, the flesh and your blood that was shed for us, that was delivered up for our sins, laid down by your own will and laid down willingly. Lord, that we might not have to lay our lives down. Lord, that our sin would be paid for, that our debt would be paid, and that you would be raised for our justification, and that if we just believe, if we put our trust in you, if we believe in Christ who God has sent, and we shall live and live for eternity. <clears throat> Help us then, we pray, to continue feeding upon you, O oh God. Help me, help my friends here to put aside the the desires and the, the wiles of the devil and the flesh and the world. Lord, to make sure that we spend quality time in your word, in your presence, praying that you would deliver to us the meaning of the scriptures, that, that, that they will become our daily food, Lord, that fellowship together would be more important than simply just attending church. So that we would need each other's company, each other's fellowship. That we would break bread together pray together, fellowship together, read the word together, go through this life leaning on each other as iron sharpens iron. Oh Lord God, help us, we pray where we fail. Forgive us, Lord. We know that you are quick and faithful to forgive when we confess our, our sins. Lord, we, we have sinned, we continue to sin, and yet we know by your grace, Lord, as we continue to come to you, that you will strengthen us and change us to go from one degree of faith to another, one degree of glory to another. Lord, I commit my friends to you this morning. Lord, may we be, may we go from this place refreshed. 
May we go from this place renewed, trusting in the God who has such an infinite grip upon his people. Lord, you will not let us go if we're yours. But Lord, if there is any here today that, isn't, that aren't yours right now, then I ask, give them the gift of repentance. Give them the gift of faith and cause them, Lord, to believe in the one whom the Father has sent. Truly, unto life, to partake of the bread of life, the flesh and the blood which gives that life. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.